Good morning. Thank you for that fine reading of a very long text. I have to uh, admit uh, to you, uh, uh, on the, the front end of uh, what I'm about to share, uh, it's, a, it's a disturbing experience uh, to have the responsibility of getting to preach uh, in front of some of your heroes. Uh, I uh, teach a doctor ministry class, and I require all of my demon students uh, at Fuller Seminary, where I teach a demon class, I require them to go and find every sermon Jessica Legrone has ever preached. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, if you have not heard her sermons a couple years ago on Jonah, you have not experienced a Christian life yet. Um, to stand in a room like this uh, uh, and get to preach in front of uh, who has become one of my own, uh, really, somebody who has shaped uh, my biblical imagination to be in the presence of uh, Dr. Ben Witherington or to be in the room uh, at some point with uh, a hero, Craig Keener, who uh, has taught me how to love Jesus with the mind. Um, it is a sacred experience to be together today for me, and I hope it is for you as well. Um, to say nothing of the fact that the greatest and coolest glasses ever are worn by Hunter. I don't know where he is, but <laughs> come on, come on. This morning, I want to talk about how to walk as a leader with the experience of doubt. Uh, during World War I, uh, a fairly interesting uh, phenomenon took place. Uh, there was this uh, desperate need for uh, men to come and fight uh, in the war. Uh, as a result of the needs, uh, a young man by the name of Emile Callier was uh, uh, brought into military service. Callier was uh, a a uh, bit of a renaissance kid. He was a brilliant uh, young philosopher, but he was an atheist. And Callier uh, sort of had to leave behind his bohemian uh, lifestyle of the mind to go fight uh, in the trenches of World War II, World War I. It is there in the trenches where Callier, uh, the young atheist, watched as his best friend next to him was shot and killed. He held him in his arms as his friend died. Upon returning from the war, Callier wrote in his journal, after this experience, I realized the inadequacy of all of my philosophy. The inadequacy of my views on the human situation, it overwhelmed me. What use the philosophic banter of the seminar when your buddy, at the time speaking to you of his mother, dies standing in front of you, a bullet in his chest? He came back, returning to a hospital after himself being shot, and sat in the, hotel, uh, the hospital, writing in his journal again. My philosophy has proven useless. I know now that my entire undertaking won't work. Why? Because it's the making of my own. There come moments in all of our lives when our philosophy for life just simply isn't matching life. After becoming a Christian at 16 years old, uh, a radical conversion to Christianity, I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, my parents got divorced at 10, and I, at 16 years old, after a season of really struggling with uh, mental health, uh, sexual identity crisis, I was an only child, uh, didn't have many friends. I was sitting in my math class in high school, and I overheard the two girls behind me arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They had been reading a book called the Left Behind series <laughs> and were contesting which Russian dictator was the Antichrist 
and why no one should have a Visa card because it secretly has the mark of the beast on it. The gospel was accidentally shared. <laughs> I went home to my bedroom that afternoon and picked up a Bible. My father, a Buddhist, had given me his Bible from college, and I sat. I didn't know what to read. I had never read this big book, and I sat and for the next two hours said to God, God, speak to me, teach me. And so I, I declared, God, I'm going to open this book, say something to me. And so for the next two hours, I read voraciously the book of Leviticus. Entirely creeped out, I decided once again, God, I'm going to give you one more shot. And I opened to a text that I had the privilege of getting to preach on this week to the undergraduate students of Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector, come and follow me. I sat in my room and I had an encounter with the living Christ. And Jesus saved me at 16 years old. When I went to college, I remember going to the University of Oregon where I took some uh, pre-med classes. I was going to be a doctor like my dad. I had no idea what God was calling me to, but I thought, hey, let's follow in my dad's footsteps. And so I took a religious studies class and 18 years old at a major research institution, brand new Christian, and sat and began to find out that the making of the Bible was a bit more complex than I had originally been told in the first church I'd gone to. It was a complex situation. There were hands involved and humans and personality and God was involved as well, but the, the whole process was complex. And I, I just didn't know this stuff. And I sat in my car reading my Bible, wondering, God, is this faith real? Or have I been tricked? Uh, back then, there was a radio program called uh, the, Answer, the Bible Answer Guy, Bible Answer Man. So I called. We didn't have the internet, so we had the, the radio, so I called. And uh, I asked my question. I said, so I'm finding out that the Bible's a bit more complex than I thought. Uh, what am I supposed to do with this? And I remember listening to the sound of uh, the radio person feather through his Bible to my particular question. And he said, that's a great question, great question, uh, but I can't give you an answer on the air. I'm going to have to send you a tape. So two weeks later, I received a tape. And on the tape, uh, I was told, what you've got is a great question. But don't worry about it. Just keep being a Christian. And very early on at 18 years old, I was taught that the questions that we bring to God are not accepted before God. And the scar of this experience very quickly did a, a tragedy to my soul. Um, it began to seed into my heart this notion that God could not handle my questions. Something to that effect. It was a chance reading by a friend who gave me a book by Tom Wright, Dr. Tom Wright, The Last Word, a book about the making of the Bible. I sat and read and was blown away by the brilliance and eloquence of a man who had spent his life wrestling with these issues. And I realized that my question wasn't really that big of a question. There were actually other bigger questions I had to start thinking through. <laughs> it was a couple years ago I got to introduce Tom Wright at a conference and publicly thank him for writing a book that gave me permission to be a Christian with a brain. What in the world do we do with our questions? How do we as leaders follow Jesus 
with the questions that we have. We live in a moment where it feels like the questions are um, at times overwhelming. There's uh, uh, no endless stream of questions. Thank you, TikTok and Twitter, <laughs> for feeding the endless stream of questions to all of us. But for a few moments, I want to ask you to consider that as a leader and as a person called by God, that maybe your questions and your struggles are not a problem for God, but are actually God's invitation to become the realest leaders imaginable. This particular psalm is written by a man named Asaph, or at least that's what the superscript says. Uh, this is one of 11 psalms that begin with the phrase, a psalm of Asaph. Uh, we don't know a lot about Asaph. What we know biographically about this man is that he's a Levite. He's a singer in David's court. Uh, he would have come from a family, likely, of temple musicians, the sons of Asaph. He was, he was a worship leader. He, his task was uh, to give uh, language to the worship of Israel. He would have given his life to not only crafting language and music for God's people, but he probably even had the responsibility of actually leading worship for God's people. And so when you read Psalm 73, this long psalm, it's striking because you never hear worship like this coming out of modern American evangelical worship industry complex. This is very unique worship. A couple things that strike me. First of all, it's very striking to me how honest this author is about their issues. This is a worship leader who is naming all sorts of things. They say things like this, I'm jealous of the wicked. Everything's going great for them, but not for me. The author in the first two verses says, everything's awesome for Israel, but not for me. The experience that many of us see when we see our brothers or sisters in Jesus excel in ministry or those works that they've been called to, but we're stuck working at Starbucks. Those moments where we see everyone else being blessed, but we ourselves, the envy of the wicked. I'm struck at how honest this worship is. And I'm equally struck at how often our worship in the American 21st century church is triumphalistic, not about God, but about how awesome we are. I'm struck at how often I feel when I'm worshiping God with our songs that I'm left with the impression uh, that I'm never going to fail God. I'm awesome and God is lucky to have me. I'm never going to let, never going to let you down. <laughs> when the reality is in worship, shouldn't worship be our honest expressions of God's triumph and our own failures? I'm struck that the psalmist has invited us to such profound honesty. And I'm also struck that the one who inspired these texts, God himself, apparently deemed it worthwhile to include this in the biblical canon. It could have been that God could have seen this psalm as a little too honest, too raw, a little too real, and said, we're going to leave this for the deuterocanonical Deuter text. We'll, we'll put this in some other realm. But no, the God who inspired Scripture read this psalm, saw these words, and said, that, that is it. That is it. 
I, I read a lot of, uh, I spent about three years, four years writing a book called After Doubt, which is about how to help people walk through this experience of doubt and deconstruction. And I, you get this sense that often we treat the Bible as a place that we go to resolve all of our questions. And I understand that. There are a lot of really important answers in the Bible. And we sometimes treat the church the same way, that it's the place you go to get all of your questions answered. And indeed, that can happen. But I'm struck that the author in this psalm doesn't really provide all the answers we want. Rather, they provide a whole new set of questions. The Bible is not always the place that you go to find the answers. Sometimes it's the place you go to find the right questions. Then the Bible doesn't steer away from it. This is the perennial issue for me as a pastor, as a dad, as a professor. Do I invite my students into the difficult stuff or do I dance around it? Do I actually invite them in or do I dance around it? You know, it's, uh, the greatest decision my family made during COVID, uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was the smartest decision I think I've made as an adult, was uh, my family during COVID, uh, we, uh, we bought a hot tub. <laughs> and it was brilliant because uh, my son, uh, who was nine when COVID began, uh, it became our daily liturgy where we would uh, eat every evening, get into, into the hot tub, and, and that would be where my son would ask all of his questions. Hey, Dad, I read this. Hey, Dad, I saw this video. Hey, Dad, I... We, in fact, we were uh, just recently on a road trip, and we have just recently told our son about the birds and the bees. It's a whole new world for him right now. And I've confessed, he looks a little differently at his parents than he did before, before this experience. And it was just, we were on a road trip this summer, and he's sitting in the back, and we, you know, we've invited him into the, one of the most sacred things in the human story. Human sexuality is beautiful. God created it, and he designed it for a purpose. And he's sitting in the back, and we've sort of mapped it out, what it's about, where he came from. His first two questions were just so brilliant. He said, hey, hey there's a little silence in the back, and he said, Dad, so like, can you talk while you do it? <laughs> what a great 11-year-old question, right? And the mom and I, we look at each other and sort of go, yeah, I guess, yeah. 30 seconds later. So, can you like walk while you do it? <laughs> so good. <laughs> I want to be the one that he asked questions of. And as silly as those questions are, I don't know if words like that have ever been uttered at this stage. <laughs> I don't know. But I can say this. If I am not the place where his questions can come, then TikTok will be. And if I'm not the place where he can bring his honest, true wonderments, he'll take them somewhere. I'm struck that Jesus ministered out of, of all things. Jesus ministered out of his scars. Meaning out of the very place of his woundedness, 
out of the very space where he had been hurt. That becomes the place that he ministers to Thomas and the disciples. As a teacher, a leader, a pastor, I actually would invite you from time to time to do what Asaph has done, to invite those that you lead into the things that keep you up at night to refuse to project this image into the world that you are the triumph. No, to confess your triumph is to declare you over God. At the end of the day, we're not the triumph. God is the triumph, and we follow God. Jesus ministered out of his scars. There's a balance here. That doesn't mean as a teacher and a pastor and a leader, I I minister out of like my open wounds. There's a difference between ministering out of a scar and a wound. An open wound is gushing. And ultimately, if I minister out of an open wound, I'm replacing what should be a spiritual spiritual direction appointment or a counseling office appointment with the pulpit. We've got to remember, we serve sheep, not camels. It's not their job to carry our junk for us. But Asaph is willingly inviting us into what he's wrestling through. What would it look like for us to live with such a confessional approach to faith? Again, not burdening with people things they can't handle. Confession is powerful. It is powerful. I define confession as this. It is telling God what is true. It is declaring to God something God is already aware of, yet willingly inviting him in. Again, there's never been a moment in human history where anyone has ever confessed a thing and God walked away more informed about the situation. God has never heard your prayers and then afterwards commented to himself, well, that was a really interesting perspective. (laughs) Confession is not telling God something he doesn't know. Asaph is not declaring something God doesn't know. He is declaring what God already knows. He is just willing to invite God into it. I'm struck that the Gospel of Mark, which likely is on some level the the story of Peter, Peter's passing along his story of Mark, telling that Mark is willing to tell the full-blown account of Peter's denial. Peter confesses his own brokenness and through which becomes the confession of the Gospel. We preach Jesus through the scars of our own brokenness. In the midst of all of this, he does confess, but he also praises God. Uh, this, is, this psalm includes elements of what you and I would call imprecatory language. It's language of telling God, and you've read this before, language of, hey God, would you beat up the people that are being mean to me? God, would you destroy the wicked? God, would you punch the wicked in the face? Literal language in the psalms. You gotta love this, that that made it in. But look at verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You, God, will destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. Again, I think this must be set in context of jealousy. Of jealousy. The author here is jealous that everyone else seems to be getting it, but they are not. What is jealousy? What is jealousy? (laughs) Go to the Ten Commandments, and you'll find a really interesting story about jealousy. That we find, first of all, the last commandment, God says, don't be jealous. It's the last commandment, number 10. It's important. 
And yet, God says in one of the earlier psalms, one of the earlier commandments, he says, I am a jealous God. And you kind of go, what? You get to be jealous, but we can't? Not cool, God. Why do you get to be jealous, but we don't? And of course, the difference between God's jealousy and our jealousy is that we are always jealous for that which is not ours, and God is always jealous for that which is his. The author here is jealous for something that is not theirs. The envy of the wicked. Those moments when you look around and you go, why can everyone else get married but not me? Why is everybody else able to have kids but me? Why is everyone else getting the good gigs but me? And so the author gives voice to that and says, God, you're going to destroy the unfaithful, this imprecatory language of, of anger. What's striking about imprecatory language in the, in the Psalms is there's never evidence that the author who writes imprecatory language of rage and anger, there's no evidence that they actually afterwards went and did the thing that they just said. In fact, what they do is they lay it on God rather than they themselves doing it. We've got to love that the Bible creates a space for human rage. Why? There's this weird thing that's happening all over our world right now where we're saying things like words are violence, and I understand the point behind that. I know why we're saying that words can lead to violence. But the Psalter invites us to name that which is inside so that we don't commit violence. Our rage must go somewhere. If it's not before God, it will be before our neighbor. Ellen Davis at Duke University, this is why she calls the Psalms the first amendment of the Bible. It is our free speech before a living God who can take and handle our rage. It's better in the hands of God than on the streets. It's better in the hands of God than with the bloodshed of our neighbor. In the midst of all of this, this is counted as praise. Praise. Psalms often finish with this very uh, thing, uh, right? The Psalms will, uh, the author will sort of name all of these challenges. God, why are you abandoning me? God, why are the Amalekites eating me? God, the dogs are encircling me. God, I'm, da, da, da. they'll name these problems, these issues. But then all of a sudden, after the author has named all of these issues, we'll end the Psalm with one line, but I praise you, God. <laughs> but I praise you, God, you're worthy of my praise. Old Testament scholars call this anticipatory praise. It is the praise of God that you give to God before things are worked out. In the midst of hell, in the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of the rage, it is not the praise we give to God after the resurrection. It's the, the praise we give to God before it happens. You're going to notice in this psalm, there are three times in this psalm, the word surely or nevertheless is used. Verse 1, 13, and 18. It structures the entire psalm. Scholars, Old Testament scholars, call, this, call these the great neverthelesses. That as the author is naming their anger and their rage and their challenges, in the midst of it, the author can still say, nevertheless, you are God. Psalm 22 does the same exact thing. The entire psalm is structured with the word yet. The psalmist says, I am a worm, not even a man, yet you are God. 
the yet, the nevertheless. To walk the people of God through our greatest challenges must come hand in hand with a people who lead out of praise. The minute our question and our challenges are separated from our love for God, that's when things get funky. When I invite my students into the challenges of the Bible and theology, I don't do it because I want to look cool. And I don't do it because I want to look cool to my students the way my theology professors looked cool to me when I was in seminary. I'm not doing it to be cool. I want to invite my students into the big questions because I want them to be deep people who know how to handle God in the hard things. Verse 18, there's praise, there's confession, and there's a sanctuary. You'll notice in verse 18, the last surely or nevertheless is used, and it is connected in verse 18 with this experience, what scholars call the sanctuary experience. Something has happened in verse 18. The author, who for 17 verses has radically and honestly given God what they have to say, all of a sudden, in verse 18, changes their tone. Something has happened. They have gone into the sanctuary. In fact, at w- in one of the last verses, there's a very odd variant in the text where God's name is used two times, uh, two divine names, my Lord and Yahweh, right next to each other, which is very uncommon in Hebrew literature. At least uh, scholars have wrestled with if maybe one of these was an actual addition or something like that. When in reality, I think what's going on here is throughout the Bible, you find that people often double somebody's name as a way to turn the volume up. I don't think the person made a mistake here. I think they're crying out to God. My Lord, Yahweh! They have walked into the sanctuary and they have beheld God. Friends, there is a blessing that comes from the lips of people who have wrestled with God. The story of Job ends of a man who loses everything, and it ends with Job and his three daughters, and he gives them an inheritance. In the ancient world, women don't get an inheritance. And he ends the story by blessing his daughters after all he's just gone through. And in addition to this, he gives them all names. He calls one Jemima, which means dove. He calls one Keziah, which means cinnamon. And he calls one Karen Hapuk, which means eyeshadow. He gives them beautiful names and an inheritance. Because people who have walked through the challenges, through the fire with God, and brought their questions faithfully on the other end, end up blessing everybody around them. Emile Callier, in a hospital room, his life was over, his philosophy didn't work. He's sitting in a park in New York City, and his wife walks by with a Bible. He'd never read the Bible. He'd never been interested in faith. And he sees his wife with a Bible. And he says, why are you reading that book? And she says, a pastor gave it to me. And he says, give it to me. And he sits in a park, and he reads the Gospels. And these are what he wrote in his journal after that experience. 
He writes, lo and behold, as, though I, as, as I look through the Bible, this story of Jesus, the one who spoke and acted in them became alive to me. And I have found that this is not the book that I understand. Rather, this is the book that understands me. And Callier sat in his, his new world <laughs> and gave his life to Christ and eventually became a philosopher at uh, Princeton University and served God for the rest of his life. There are times in our lives when our theology and our ideas don't seem to make sense. But I would suggest to you today, out of Psalm 73, out of my own life, I would suggest to you today that the goal of the Christian life is not the pursuit of answers in the abstract. The goal of the Christian life is the pursuit of the truth, who is Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life.